0: To the Pac-Man Podcast, Patriotic American Citizen. I'm Ted Flint on the BMG Network. Well, we're going to focus the first few minutes of the program on education in America, and really education is the main battleground between left and right. The left dominates the educational establishment, and they have for decades. And I was reading a piece, I get this monthly magazine called Imprimus. And Larry Arn is the, the president of Hillsdale College, puts out this, uh, it's a, a wonderfully uh, informative uh, pamphlet, you know, four or five pages. And each month they have a different speaker and a different topic. And they focused on education. I'm not going to read it to you, but he points out that over the last 20 years, from 2000 to 2019, the number of district administrators grew by 87.6%. During those 19 years, number of students has grown only 7.6% and teachers 8.7. And he's got the chart here and everything. And it really, it, it illustrates a fundamental change that's come over our nation during this period. A change in how we govern ourselves, how we live, our mores in many cases. It's an excellent piece. If you get a chance, download it in primus. Larry Arne. At Hillsdale College. All right. Uh, and, you know, education kind of ties into what I'm going to talk about here for a few minutes. We've been battling these left-wing radicals here in the village of Cambridge, and the town as well. They want to do away with our Cambridge Indian mascot and logo. And this has been going on since, I, you know, since 2000, when the former education commissioner, I can't think of his name, Richard Mills, ordered that these the schools uh, around the state remove their mascots and logos that have any... Uh, you know, they could be offensive. Some people find them offensive. Some people. In our town and village, four families found the Indian mascot and logo offensive. So they launched this campaign to uh, eradicate it. And of course, uh, they've so far succeeded. There's a lawsuit pending. So we sued, we countersued to to keep the mascot and it's not yet resolved. And I'm not going to speculate on how the uh, the verdict's going to turn out, but my, my guess is that the state will win and a few uh, perpetually aggrieved liberals will get their way. Maybe, maybe not. But the, that's, that's in Cambridge. But this is going on around the state. Now, Mohanison is in the uh, uh, Schenectady School District, Schenectady County, and the Board of Regents is at it again. They, they're not going to relent on this proposed ban of mascots and nicknames that refer to indigenous people. Native Americans, Indians, in other words. So they agreed Monday of this week that the school district names could remain, but they would have to remove the logo or any signs of, uh, you know, any Indian logos uh, or images from from the school like we did here in in Cambridge. And a lot of places in New York, dozens of schools in New York, have had uh, names that refer to Native American tribes. Seneca, uh, in Seneca County, in Cayuga County as well, and locally Shenandoah is a word in the Iroquois language, and every school building name in the district also comes from that language. Mohannesson, it's an Indian name. The Mohannesson School District is a reference to three tribes, the Mohawk, Onondaga, and the Seneca. The names can stay, says the state, but state officials said the mascot or logo names, or the images rather, that refer to indigenous people, however respectful the designers might think they are, must go. Says who, the state? And the state is holding funding over the heads of some of these, all the districts. Basically, they're they're saying, you do what we want you to do or else uh, we're going to withhold funding. I say we ought to call them on it. Let's say, all right, keep your money. We're not going to do that. No school board will agree to do that. But in a perfect world, uh, I think that's what should be done. I think parents, if possible, should pull their children out of public schools because they're no good anyway. And they they should homeschool their children, as my wife and I have been doing with our kids. Now we have one daughter in the high school because she wants to play sports and she's on NHS and she's, you know, she's involved in all the clubs and she, you know, she enjoys it. She doesn't like getting up early in the morning for school, but you know she wants to have that connection with her classmates, and I understand that. I understand the socialization aspect of it. Our two young boys are, are homeschooled. Our oldest daughter is in is in college at SUNY uh, SUNY Albany, but anyway. So I'm reading a piece here from the uh, Times Union, and uh, all the names can stay. The names can stay, but state officials said uh, the mascot or logo images that refer to Indigenous people, however respectful the designers might think they are, must go. Also to be eliminated, nicknames, exactly which ones are still up for debate. Regents members asked about the nickname Warriors, which is one of the most common school sports nicknames in the state. Lake George kept that nickname after changing its indigenous-related mascot to an image of a torch. That probably offends somebody. The torch, you know, means, oh, it's scary, fire, ooh. You know, you're going to offend somebody. You, you don't have the right not to be offended. Anyway, South Colony replaced its mascot image, but kept the nickname Raiders, and Mechanicville dropped its original mascot, but kept the nickname the Red Raiders. So I mean, out, there are dozens of schools around the state that have Indian names. The uh, state education department is convening an advisory council that will include Indigenous people. Their first meeting will take place in January, and state officials plan to ask them what they think of nicknames like the Warriors. Now we have Indians in uh, here in Cambridge. One of the school board members, uh, Dylan Haniost, is is uh, a Native American. I forget which tribe. I apologize. Dylan, if you're listening, but they don't care what people think. They don't even uh, American Indians or uh, indigenous peoples. they don't care if indigenous people favor keeping the mascot, they'll be overruled by the state eventually. Anyway, but they're convening a, an advisory council, state ed. Why not convene an advisory council and, and to find out why such a large percentage of children in the public schools are not able to read at grade level? In the meantime, state officials urged school board members to think about what the nicknames origins were and get rid of ones that don't have a respectful history. Now, who gets to decide respectability? Well, the state. That's how it always is. And the liberals go along with it because they, that's what they want. They want the state to, to make all the decisions because the state is holding the funding over districts' heads. See, that's that's the stick, the funding. So at a meeting of the Board of Regents Monday, state officials unveiled a specific regulation on the issue. they will hold a 60-day comment period before the board will vote on the regulation, likely in April. That's what happened here. They had all the, they had a, a third party, so supposedly a neutral third party where basically it was a liberal left-wing group try to come in and mediate the dispute between the two sides here in Cambridge. It was the whole thing was rigged. and uh, anyway, it does it's a done deal. You know, they won't listen to any other points of view. The state, State Education Department and Dr. Rosa, she could care less. She's a bureaucrat. An unelected bureaucrat gets to decide if Cambridge keeps its Indian mascot and logo, if Mohanesson does the same or Lake George or Mechanicville. I mean, why is it the Board of Regents business? I mean, I know why. A vast majority of community members here in Cambridge, and I'm sure the other areas too, they want to keep the mascot name and logo. The State Education Department, again, is threatening to withhold funding if these districts don't comply. I hope they don't comply. Let's have this out. You have more power than you know. We pay the bills, not the State Education Department, through our, our property taxes. That's the main source of school funding. All right, on to I got so many things here I want to get to, and I'm, I spent probably too much time on that. Another win for conservatives in, in the culture war. A court ruled that the uh, Catholic hospitals around the country cannot be forced to provide transgender surgeries. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled the Biden-Junta regime cannot force a group of Catholic hospitals and doctors to perform transgender surgeries. And the operative word here is force. That's how the government does everything. They force you. They mandate things. Friday, the court's three judges found the Department of Health and Human Services violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act when it attempted to force Sisters of Mercy, the University of Mary, and SMP Health System to perform the surgeries. Similar victory for conservative groups over the summer when the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that Christian medical organizations cannot be, or again, forced to perform abortions. Just a little background uh, information. The HHS had argued Section 1557 of the uh, Obamacare—it's Obamacare, Obamacare basically—the the Affordable Care Act, which bars sexual discrimination should be enforced on the Catholic groups, the same section used as a basis for August's abortion case. Of course, Roe versus Wade was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. Last year, the federal district court judge Peter Welty ruled in favor of North Dakota— and the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberties lawsuit on behalf of the Catholic groups, prompting the Biden administration's Eighth Circuit appeal. The federal government, I'll I'll read you the, uh, the statement here from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, its vice president and senior counsel, Luke Goodrich, and he nails it. The federal government has no business forcing doctors to violate their consciences or perform controversial procedures that could permanently harm their patients. Sex change operations transgender surgeries or abortions you know i mean the hippocratic oath doctors take do first do no harm that's that's the first rule for for doctors government has no business in so many areas but especially this one one final story here this and i don't have enough time to go into it and this is kind of getting in the weeds anyway it's kind of it's a long story and i, I just happened to see this either in worldnetdaily or townhall.com but it it's regarding ballot harvesting And it's happening a lot all over the country, but especially in places like Wisconsin, as we've talked about, and in Philadelphia, well, not just Philadelphia, actually in Pennsylvania. The state of Pennsylvania, although the legislature, the state legislature, is controlled by Republicans, it's a purple state because Republicans don't do what they need to do. First of all, they don't get out and vote in great numbers. But the ballot-harvesting leader is not Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, as you would expect, it's a little suburb in Delaware County, and it's it defines convention and statistical trends. And local Democratic organizers, they built a completely legal ballot harvesting juggernaut. They did their work, and they did it in the light of day as opposed to the in the cover of darkness, the way they usually do things. But I'll just glance over this here. These organizers, they did their work along Delaware County's uh, Oak lined sidewalks and soccer fields, it says. And they enrolled Democratic voters for mail in balloting when no other Pennsylvania county was able to do so. Again, the, the uh, legislature is controlled by Republicans. If you want to read it, uh, well, it's on WorldNet Daily. So you can, you can check it out. And uh, unlike in person voting, which requires no ide- voter identification, Pennsylvania's mail in ballot process requires the applicant to provide identification, either a driver's license or social security number. It sounds racist to me. You have to provide an ID. Anyway, county boards of elections are required to verify the information or the ballot cannot be cast. So it's hard to cheat with this process in Pennsylvania, the mail-in process there. And uh, by the way, speaking of uh, ballot harvesting and cheating, and I, we'll have to wind it up here. I'm out of time here. Uh, some, a friend of mine gave me the uh, a DVD of 2,000 Mules, the uh, documentary by Dinesh D'Souza, on, and, and he just has proof of uh in wisconsin in in pennsylvania and in maricopa county arizona of these people just stuffing these um drop boxes with dozens of of ballots obviously against the law and all hours of the day and night long after midnight two three o'clock in the morning they're stuffing these ballots into uh drop boxes there was some cheating going on in in pennsylvania and in Wisconsin and in Arizona, and probably other parts of the, of the country as well, was it enough to tip the election to Joe Biden? Some people think it it was, and I'm one of them. Uh, I'm an election denier. I'll, I'll admit it. Hillary Clinton is an election denier. She denied the 2016 results, and there are election deniers on the Democrat party on the Democrat side, but they, you know, they never get any uh, anybody talking about it in the media. Many of them d- denied that Donald Trump won in 2016. But anyway, back to, I I just can't get off Pennsylvania. You know, with the problem in Pennsylvania, the Republican candidates, they had a bad midterm because Republicans did not vote. That's why Pennsylvania is a purple state. The failure of Pennsylvania Republicans to implement a a mail-in ballot strategy the way the Democrats have done is a problem that can be solved. Florida Republicans did it. They excel at it. And I'm looking, I'm going to leave you here with a couple of statistics. In a few weeks, more than 300,000 Republicans will receive a mail in ballot re enrollment application from their county's Board of Elections. That represents over a quarter of a million GOP voters who understand the process. These are the low hanging fruit. These people have got to get the job done. And the Democrats know what they're doing. I think there should be one day to vote, and that's it. I mean, obviously, the military, overseas ballots, and over, you know, you can cast. Ballots from uh, overseas if you're in the military, but you need to vote on election day. This early voting is most you know, most people who early vote are Democrats, clearly by wide margins, and they used COVID as a, as a pretext to do it. And there was a lot of cheating and a lot of, underhanded activity, on election night, 2020, and again here in these midterms, I believe. All right, we've got a roll. Thank you very much, folks, for tuning us in. If you like what you heard, please by all means hit like, hit subscribe and because you need to subscribe to the program. We do it at least once a week. It's called Pac-Man, and I'm Ted Flint. I'm the host, and uh, tell your friends about it. Hit share, too, on on social media. Thank you very much, and check out all the fine shows we have for you on the BMG Network. We have this program, which airs Wednesdays. Madeline, my daughter Madeline, with a show called The Essentials with Maddie Flint. Adrian Ross has a show up there. A couple of new programs as well, and we do columns, too, under the PAC Perspective. And we try to get a column up on the... Uh, on the website for you at least once a week. Thanks very much, folks, for tuning us in. If the Lord wills it, we will talk to you soon. The Pac-Man Podcast was produced and edited in the BMG studio. Music by Kevin McLeod. For more episodes of the Pac-Man Podcast, go to the bmgnetwork.com or go to the BMG Network on Facebook. And be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Pac-Man Podcast with Ted Flint.